we cannot continue using fossil fuels the way we do today. Or the way we wish we were using today, right? These are the words of the Prime Minister of Denmark, speaking of course in Copenhagen, where about 15,000 people, including leaders from about 192 countries, are meeting this week in heated buildings to take on one of the most serious challenges facing our planet, that of human-created global climate change. There are activists and student leaders here and in Copenhagen, including those from the campaign we've heard more about this fall, the campaign to bring atmospheric carbon levels back to 350 parts per million, or 350. On Friday night here in Harvard Square, community leaders and members from our own Climate Justice Task Force gathered on our front steps for a candlelit vigil to keep the pressure on. As these activists and leaders lit their candles for the future of our planet, families across the world lit candles at home to call to mind a story of the past, that of Hanukkah. As Mandy shared with us earlier this morning, the Jewish Festival of Lights commemorates a miracle in the temple. When the Maccabees left with enough fuel to allow the lamps to burn for just one more night, found that their lamps remained lit for eight holy nights. And I can't help but comment on the coincidence. Here are events separated by culture and history, but linked in time and ritual, and both are centered on the need for more oil. Although I can make light of the situation, so to speak, truly this is a time when our hearts and spirits are drawn to consider all of our needs for more. If not more oil, perhaps more time, more money, more holidays, more cookies, more toys or parties, learning to grapple with more and its overlooked counterpart, enough, can make this time of year feel like a season of being asked for more, or perhaps being asked for too much, as well as a season of giving more, and perhaps giving too much. And of course, I'm guilty too. I joined the chorus of askers only a few weeks ago when we distributed charity boxes for you to take home. And I ask you all to give generously to the UU Service Committee's campaign for universal human rights. And I hope these guests are still welcome at your tables and that you'll make sure to bring your change and your checks back to our Sunday service next week on December 20th. Give, give, give. Give, as the stewardship board in our parlor reminds us, give until it feels good. I like the sound of that. I like the way it assumes that you can count on my generosity and that it springs from a certainty of abundance. Giving can be a joy, not a burden. It's an invitation and not an obligation. And the reason people give, I learned in my years as a fundraiser, is not only because there's a nickel in that little envelope or because the child is very cute or because the envelope arrived at the right time of the year, it is almost always because they have been asked to give. And that's why my mailbox is full of so many letters asking for my help at this time of year. And that is why the American Red Cross launched a campaign 
to cut us off at the pass and just consider yourself asked. Encouraging us to stop waiting to be asked to donate blood and instead step up on our own initiative. These campaigns have been very successful because they work. And who am I to question the efficiency of a season of asking? It's good that we have time set aside in our lives and our cultural calendar to remember the neediest, to give to the Globe Santa Fund. It's cold, and at this time of year, it is wise to do more than think about those who sleep outside at night. It's a good time to give more, a warm meal and a warm bed and a warm smile. It's a good time to be reminded of the connections that have been stretched too thin over the past year. I know one reason that my family started exchanging gifts, gift lists was because we no longer knew enough about one another's lives to be trusted to choose a good present. The lists, the lists were a shorthand for conversations that we hadn't had all year, for discussions about new passions or interests that we hadn't gotten around to sharing with one another. I have to tell you though, I miss the conversations. I don't know exactly when that Salvation Army bell began to sound a little shrill. I'm not sure when the letters started to seem too demanding or the needs they described became too daunting. Uncomfortable with being asked, I considered altering my route through Harvard Square to avoid those nice young people with the petitions to sign. I thought about putting on my subway face, impassive, closed down, plugged in, eyes averted, no longer open for business. You see, I forgot that the opposite of being asked is not saying no to the request. It's refusing to listen at all. Let me say that again. The opposite of saying yes when asked is not always saying no. It's refusing to listen. Let me share an image with you, taken from William Urey's follow-up to his best-selling negotiation book, which you've probably heard of. It's called Getting to Yes. But his new book is called The Power of a Positive No, How to Say No and Still Get to Yes. When readers responded to getting to yes, they pointed out that sometimes in negotiations and in life, we don't actually want to get to yes. What we want to do is get to know gracefully and while staying in relationship with those whose requests we are not fulfilling. In response, Yuri suggested we think of our life decisions as part of a big tree. Our deep values as people of faith, the big yes that we say to Unitarian Universalist principles, such as the inherent worth and dignity of all, compassion in human relations, and the goal of world community with peace and justice, these are the deep roots of that tree. And up at the top of our tree are all the little branches, the little yeses that we have said to things that are important in our life. Yes to joining a congregation like this one on a cold Sunday morning. Yes to being in touch with our children or our parents, even when it's hard to make time for it. Yes, to a balance of work that we are paid for and work that we are not paid for, for family life. Yes, to a friend who needs a favor. 
but you'll notice that between the branches and the trunk and the, and the roots is a trunk. And that trunk is what Yuri calls the trunk of positive no's. No to relationships that drain us. No to addictions that plague us. No to a host of little things that can add up to desperation in our lives. Yuri points out that each no connects us to our big yes, our values. And each no actually frees us up to do the things that do give us life and nourish us. He reminds us too that each time we are in relationship and called to respond, we grow and our, our conversations become an integral part of that being, that great tree. Saying no to a request for more of our time at work is also saying yes to other relationships or time at home. Saying no to a request for funds for a worthy cause frees us up to say yes to other causes that are closer to our hearts. And when we feel that solid trunk, that solid trunk of saying no, we can grow our roots and our branches and say yes to the things that have the most meaning in our lives. We don't have to shut it all out with our subway faces to prevent people from even getting in to ask. Instead, we can consider ourselves asked only to listen, not to give more or do more or be more. Rebecca Ann Parker, a Unitarian Universalist minister and president of the Star King School for the Ministry at UU Seminary, shares the following story to remind us how dignifying it is to be asked to be in relationship, to be trusted with someone else's need. Her story centers on tithing, the spiritual practice of giving a percentage of one's income rather than an overall dollar amount to one's faith community. She writes, it was Pledge Drive Sunday, and the people had been asked to talk about why they give to the church. One congregation member stood up and said, I first began to tithe because I was taught to do so by my church. And my church taught me to obey its teachings. But as I matured in my faith, I began to understand that obedience was not all that important and could even be destructive. I continued to tithe, however, because the people I most loved and admired tithed. My parents and leaders of the religious community, whose lives really challenged me with their goodness. I wanted to be like them, and so I tithed in imitation of those I loved. And then he went on. But as my faith matured further, I came to my own reason for giving, and this is why I do it now. I do it because to tithe is to tell the truth about who I am. If I did not tithe, it would say that I was a person who had nothing to give. A person who had received nothing in life. A person who did not matter to the larger society or whose life's meaning was in providing for his own needs alone. But in fact, I am the opposite of these things. I am a person who has something to give. I am a person who has received abundantly from life. I am a person whose presence matters in the world. And I am a person whose life has meaning because I am connected to and care about many things larger than myself. If I did not give, I would lose track of these truths about who I am. Can you hear how important it is that we put down those deep roots and grow out those branches? 
that we ask great things of one another, that we not content ourselves with small dreams and hopes, but that we stretch and grow as people of faith. This I know for sure. You are a person who has something to give. You, whether you are a member or a guest, a minister, a student, whether you sleep inside or outside, you are a child or an adult, single or partnered, you are a person who has received abundantly from life. Your presence matters in the world. It is profoundly dignifying to consider ourselves asked, to claim our ability to listen, to witness, to respond, to be a blessing in this world. Our lives have greater meaning. My life has greater meaning when I remember that I am connected to and care about many things larger than myself. When I think about my tree at this time of year, that root of yes, that trunk of no, I realize I am not under siege. This is not an embattled season, a season where I have to open my hands because unwillingly, but it doesn't mean it will be an easy season, for daily I am reminded of my commitments and I am called to account for what I say I believe in. I think of President Obama in this season when he is being asked to do, say yes to many things, but also learn how to say no. Here's someone who's at the commander-in-chief of two wars and yet is accepting the Nobel Peace Prize. He found it difficult in his speech to speak about peace without talking about war. His acceptance of the prize is complicated, if not outright awkward. He's asking 30,000 more soldiers to go to Afghanistan, and yet saying he is committed to a world in which such violent forces are no longer necessary. Obama's speech touched on many things. He believes global stability will be built on four cornerstones of economic policy and also of diplomacy, agreements among nations, strong institutions, support for human rights, and investments in development. Yet each of these cornerstones would not be enough to create a lasting and just peace, he said. At the end of his speech, he said, I do not believe that we will have the will or the staying power to complete this work without something more. And that is the continued expansion of our moral imagination, our insistence that there is something irreducible that we all share. Obama, a wartime president and Peace Prize laureate, thinks our world needs something more, and that is a greater capacity for moral imagination, a connection to our common worth and dignity, that spark of the divine that burns so brightly for me as I ask myself where to turn in a world in war, still struggling for peace. And so I turn to my faith and say, let me not turn away, but strengthen my connections to the world, a world in war, a world threatened, a world not as it yet, yet may be, a dear world in all its complexity. Let me realize that before I get to more, more love, more money, more time, I will find myself living with enough, enough oil for the lamps, enough no, 
Enough, yes. And of course, enough light. In a time of gathering shadow, the symbols we share of light, the light that does not go out at the longest night of the year, let us find enough light from each candle at the vigil and each candle in the Hanukkah candelabra. Enough light from the fireplace and the Christmas trees and enough light from our own hopes and dreams to find our way in a challenging time, in a joyful season. Spiritual advisor Marianne Williamson shares the following reflection on the principles offered in A Course in Miracles to remind us of our light. She writes, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And it's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. My spiritual friends, consider yourselves asked. Asked to listen, asked to turn to one another, and to a community and a world that needs your gifts desperately. Consider yourselves asked to shine, to shine and to be a blessing to this world. Amen, and blessed be.